Good morning. Whoa. What an amazing time of worship. This is awesome. Privilege is mine, honestly. Um, I can't tell you how deeply I've been moved to see how God has been working in and through you and Todd's place in all that. It's been huge. There's a Hebrew practice at the end of synagogue service when you finish the Torah. Everybody chants three times. Chazak, chazak, v'nit, chazak. Chazak, chazak, v'nit, chazak. Be strong. Be strong. Give each other strength. Be strong. Be strong. Give each other strength. Because every Jew knows to live for God is very hard. And he knows we need all the help we can get. Todd has been that to me since I met him. And I bless God for what God has done in Todd's life for you. So it's my honor to be here this morning. Thank you so much. I've been totally blessed this weekend. I get to a lot of churches. I do about a dozen of these weekends a year all over the country and even in others. And I sense the Spirit of God in churches in different ways. There's no doubt God is alive and well in this community. And it's really obvious. I hope you see it. Sometimes when you're in it, it's harder to see than when you look in from the outside. God is doing amazing things here, and I can really see that. So I bless God for your hospitality, your friendship, and for inviting me here. And you're close in my heart. And I will continue to pray for my good friend Todd for Jill, for Peter, Danny, and Ben and their family, and I'll pray for you. And I ask that you'd pray for me and for us and for our ministry, which we share a common love for Jesus. I thought this morning we would do a study from the book of Acts. <laughs> I tried to find one verse in Acts that you guys haven't heard a sermon on. I couldn't find one, so decided to look another place. Anyway, bless God for that. What I'd like to ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is to stand. Jewish custom is to offer one's entire self to God as you come into His presence to hear His Word, and He asks a response. Say the Hebrew after me to put ourselves in touch in a way with our ancient God roots, and then we'll say it together in English. Join me, please. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloecha, Bechol Levavcha, Uvachol Nafshecha, Uvachol Meodecha, Ve'ahavta Lareacha Kamocha. Amen. Now say the English together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Say these words, please, after me from the book of Exodus. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. From under the yoke of the Egyptians, I will set you free from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I am the Lord. These are the very words of God. Amen. Please sit down. Our God loves story. I don't know why, but it seems as though every time God does something, He puts it in the form of a story. The history of the universe is really God's amazing story. But what I've learned is that this incredible God story, which the Bible contains at least a part of, 
is not for spectators. I think sometimes we want to sit on the sidelines and watch the God story go by in all its glory. When what God wants is for us to join that story. To become a sentence, a paragraph, a character, or maybe nothing more than a punctuation mark in His great story. The sages say, to be a part of the God story, you need to do three things. You need to take the story in. Hagah! Remember yesterday? You need to take it in. Then you need to act the story out. It has to be lived. Not simply believed, but lived. And then, because we need all the help we can get, we need to cheer the story on. I'd like to invite you to join the story this morning. Just a piece of it. Not simply to see it or to understand it or even at the end to say, you know, I believe it, but to say, I want into that story. I want that to be about us, not them. The rabbis say that if you go to the Bible, you should be able to get to any verse from any other verse. Somehow the whole story is connected. So I'd like to take an early chapter and show you how amazingly God connected that distant, ancient chapter with a chapter that you know very well. And in that, to say, let's join the story. So come with me back to the beginning. If you look at God's story, we haven't time to do this in great detail, but let me show you. God had a purpose. The story starts in Genesis 1 with what is called chaos. It's this churning mess of water and formlessness and emptiness. Check it out sometime. And out of that formlessness, God brought order, harmony. You've seen it. You look at some of the most beautiful scenery in the world, those mountains to the west of you. That's the harmony and the order God brought out of creation, out of chaos. That order or harmony is called in the Bible shalom. Everything exactly the way it's supposed to be, the way God intended it. Unfortunately, we humans, starting with our most ancient ancestors, reduced God's shalom back toward chaos. We messed up His beautiful world. We're just beginning to think about how much we may have messed up. We messed up God's desire that all His human children love one another and care for one another. We brought all kinds of chaos into our own lives and into our own world. If you look at that chaos, it started as individual chaos. Husbands and wives didn't get along. Bodies got sick. People did sinful things. And one of the first humans killed his own brother. But it didn't take long until that individual chaos became a community of chaos. The rabbis call it the anti-kingdom. Groups of people who join together to do evil things. Nations that bring persecution on parts of them. People groups who discriminate against other people groups. Holocausts. Ethnic cleansings. Whole communities that bring chaos to others in order to further themselves. But the God story, from the beginning, is God saying, Enough! I'm going to do something about that evil that brings chaos. That brings chaos into your life individually and that brings chaos into communities. 
I'm going to push that away. And when I've pushed it away and in the process of destroying it, I'm going to bring shalom again. But then this amazing God says, I could do that like this. But i got a better idea. How about you join me? And we'll do it together. You up for it? God wants to partner with the same people that brought all the chaos into His world to stand against every kind of evil and to bring harmony and restoration and to build houses in Juarez for people who are without a place to live. And God said, enough of the anti-kingdom! How about... We have the kingdom of heaven. Join me, will you? Let's go back in history and see what that looked like. Egypt was an anti-kingdom. Oh, Egyptians weren't bad people, and they certainly aren't today. They're some of the friendliest, most wonderful people you'll ever meet. But in the ancient time, Egypt was an anti-kingdom. Its whole design was to bring suffering on some in order that others might be comfortable. Come with me. It's a pretty amazing place. I don't know how many of you have been there, and you can see a thousand of these pictures, but i tell you something. Until you've stood next to it, you can't imagine what these people were capable of creating. It is stunning. And this, a thousand years old, when Abraham got there. Unbelievable. Two and a half million stones. Uh, excuse me, 22 million stones. Brought from hundreds of miles away. Piled up 800 feet high. From north to south, east to west, less than a quarter of an inch off in 750 feet. be hard to do today. And Egypt carved their legacy, their power, their glory in stone. But if you look at it, as impressive as it is, it's pretty worn. And it's crumbling slowly but surely. And if Jesus doesn't come back, It'll slowly disintegrate. And God came and said, if you want something to last, you don't put it in stone. If you want something to last, you put it in flesh and in text. And in that unbelievable anti-kingdom, with all its power, all its unbelievable glory, all its desire to go down in history is an eternal kingdom. In that kingdom lived a small community of ordinary people called the Hebrews. They didn't live so close to the pyramids, to be honest. hundred miles or so. They lived here. At first, it was good. Come with me. Let me show you. Egypt is basically two lands formed by the Nile River. You see it there in the middle. As far as the Nile floods, Egypt is as fertile as northwest Iowa. It is absolutely stunning. But the moment you get to the point that the flooding stops, it's as severe a desert as you can find any place in the world. That's hard to describe. The person taking this picture of me is standing on a little dirt trail. I'm, what, 100 feet that way. I asked him, take my picture and then turn around. Let me walk past you the same distance this way. 
That's about the distance of this church auditorium apart. But those Hebrews, those ordinary people, lived in some of the finest agricultural land that I have ever seen. And I grew up on a pretty nice farm in West Michigan. It is unbelievable. When I was there the first time, I was absolutely stunned because somehow I had the idea that these Hebrews had been given sort of a high desert area of Egypt where they could barely eke out an existence. And I discovered, in fact, the opposite is true. These people had about as wonderful a place for ancient farmers to live as you could imagine. And life was absolutely amazing. And you ask, well, what did they do when the Nile flooded? Four months a year, there's 15, 20 feet of water over top of that farmland. What did they do then? And the answer is, well, Pharaoh had an answer. When your land is flooded, I'll hire you. You can build my temples and my statues and my tombs and my palaces and my fortresses and I'll pay you a good middle class income. And when the flood is gone, go home and enjoy the glory of your farms. And the Hebrews did well. And they were economically prosperous. But in the process, they fell in love with Egypt. And they began to be drawn to the Egyptian gods. The prophet Ezekiel says, your ancestors worshipped the gods of Egypt. Because they fell in love with middle class prosperity. They fell in love with their two chariot garages. They fell in love with their second homes where they worked on the palaces. They fell in love with their bank accounts and their success. And I think, this is my opinion, God looked down and He said, No! No, you don't understand. That doesn't come cheap. Somebody's paying a big price for you to be comfortable and successful. How can you worship their gods? And so God brought a new Pharaoh who said, Hebrews, it's your turn to pay the price for our prosperity. You submit. You become my slaves. You take the abuse. You serve the forced labor. And if you have the nerve to resist, I'll take your right hand. You wouldn't believe how many places in Egypt, by the hundreds, where the pictures show Pharaoh seated, receiving the right hand of anybody who dared to stand against him. And if it isn't the right hands, it's the tongues. And all of a sudden, the Hebrews realized what the cost was when the goal in life is to be successful and prosperous and wealthy no matter what the cost. And for the first time in their two, three, four hundred years in Egypt, they began to wish they weren't there. And they began to cry out as some lost their hands and some their tongues and some took the beatings because they didn't reach the quota of bricks. And others watched as Pharaoh's soldiers dropped their baby boys into the Nile to be eaten by the crocodile god. And they cried out. Not to anyone, it doesn't seem. They cried out. Help! 
God sent a man named Moses. And God said, you tell him, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I will bring them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will set them free from being slaves. I will redeem them with an outstretched arm. And I will take them, and he uses the word for marriage. Isaac took Rebekah as his wife, remember? I will take you to be my bride. I'll do it, Moses. I'll do it, Moses. You tell them. And God's great power, the power of his little finger, entered history. And the Nile turned to blood. And there were frogs and bugs and darkness and cattle got sick and grasshoppers ate all the crops and hail destroyed. And God said, let my people go. I need them to bring shalom these people in chaos. When I stand there and I think about that, it, I wouldn't say troubles me, but it bothers me. You've had your chaos. Our country is in chaos right now. You've had it in your life. Some of you have had it in your body. Some of you have had it in your relationships. God comes to the very people whose lives are in chaos and says, I want you to help me bring shalom. Me? I'm the one who needs the shalom. And God said, you're right. But in bringing shalom, you find shalom. I don't know what the Israelites thought when God said that to them. But then God said, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. Well, God doesn't forget, but I'll tell you what. On the tenth day of the first month, I want you to pick a ram. Now, if you've ever been to Egypt, there are 60 gazillion rams like this. This is the number one picture of Egyptian gods. Amun-Ra, the king of the gods, the ram-headed god. That's a sacred animal to the Egyptian. They despised shepherds because shepherds did awful things like cut wool off a sheep, drink milk from goats, and worse, they ate the sacred animal. So God said, um, I want all the Hebrews to pick one of those. Tie it to your front door. The closer to the street, the better. But what if the Egyptians see us? Moses says, they'll stone us. And God said, you trust me or not? Tie the thing to your door. For four days. And then, on the 14th day, out in front of your house, take a sharp knife, cut the sheep's throat, catch the blood in a bowl, and paint it on the doorpost. Inside, right, God? No! Put it out there where everybody can see it, especially the Egyptian soldiers that patrol through here. If you want to join the God story and be part of addressing the evils in our world that bring chaos, whether they are disease, homelessness, or personal sin, if you want to be part of bringing shalom, whether it's the shalom of building a house, or the shalom of reconciling feuding people, or the shalom of whatever, 
you're going to have, a t- have to take a step of faith. Before you see what God is going to do. Kill the lamb first. And then I'll set you free. Imagine. You've got lamb's blood on your doorpost. This Moses guy that strangely appeared, wild-eyed, carrying a stick out of the desert, has told you, if you do that, our God is going to stalk through the land tonight. And whoever has taken the step of faith will be saved, rescued, protected. And whoever hasn't, including the Egyptians, I'm finished with them. Now you're going to find out if that's true. So you sit all night with your two-year-old in your lap. What if? What if it doesn't work? What if God kills us anyway? He's done some pretty amazing stuff. What if God isn't serious and the angel doesn't even show up and tomorrow morning the Egyptians come? So all night you sit in silence, listening. What's that sound? Who was that? And then you began to hear it. The screams of anguish from those who didn't take the step of faith. And now you watch wide-eyed as your Egyptian neighbors knock on your door, not to throw stones at you for sheep's blood, but your Egyptian neighbors knock on the door, pleading with you, leave us! Go! And take everything we own with you! And you say, Okay, but i got to take my tambourine too. (laughs) And as they walked out of Egypt after this night of terrified watching and then amazing watching, God said for all generations, forever, this night, the night after Passover, will be called Lyle Shimmerim. Say Lyle Shimmerim. Lyle Shimmerim, which means a night of watching. I want you to stay up all night, every year, the night after Passover, to remember how you watched in terror and how you watched in awe. Then they left Egypt and they found themselves trapped up against the sea. They couldn't swim and in the distance came Pharaoh's tank corps. 600 of his finest charioteers and all the rest of them besides. And you're trapped again. And you ask, what will God do? And you watch in horror and terror. And then God divides the sea. And now you're carrying your baby. You're helping your invalid sister. You're carrying your elderly grandfather. And you're watching these walls of water on both sides wondering, will they hold? See, that's so hard for us to imagine. We just we know the end of the story. So it's, of course you walk through the Red Sea. You dance. Really? How do you know for sure it isn't your death? You don't. You have faith. And so they have another Lyle Shimmerim. And then in the morning they discover their God can be trusted because they're all safe on the bank. And the Egyptians are gone. 
Because God said, I will not tolerate forever any person or any community, any kingdom that brings chaos into the lives of others. I sit and think sometimes, I wonder why America is in such a mess right now. We better look real carefully to make sure we have not taken advantage of other people groups and other nations and other cultures. That we don't have among us those who pay a high price so the rest of us can live comfortably. I'm not saying we did or do, but if we do, God's patience is not going to last forever. Ask Pharaoh. And as they stood there, they suddenly realized why they took their tambourines. Because no matter how big the chaos, no matter how much it seems like hell at the moment, if you follow that God, somewhere, someday, somehow, you will dance. Got your tambourine? And then, at least so the rabbis say, They began to realize what God had really promised. Because you see, when you first look at that passage we recited together, it looks like four ways of saying the same thing. I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. And I will take you as my own people like a husband takes a wife. But the rabbis noticed little nuances The Israelites were slaves. They were being beaten. Their hands were being severed. Their tongues were being taken out. They had to put their babies in the river. Can you go there? It's not them. It was us. And God said, Tomorrow, I will take you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Yes. Tomorrow, we don't lose our hands anymore. We don't lose our tongues anymore. Tomorrow, our babies are saved. But the sages say, you stood on the bank and you realized we're out of Egypt, but we're still slaves. We've never had to do anything for ourselves our whole lives. We don't know how to live in the desert. We don't know how to do anything except follow orders. God help us. And God said, okay. I will free you from being a slave by nature. It's like an alcoholic. Alcoholic can stop drinking. Ask someone who struggles with that particular chaos. And still fight the inner alcoholic demon the rest of his or her life. And God said, I'll not only stop you from drinking, I'm going to take your alcoholic nature away. You'll never want it again. And they stood on the bank, looked at one another in a metaphorical sense, and said, wow, we're not only free, we're not slaves anymore. But as they looked, again like an alcoholic, it dawned on them, but God, we're a mess. We've messed up everything. We've messed up our relationship with you. We've messed up our understanding of how to relate to one another. We're dirty. And God said, yeah, you're right. Those are pretty lousy gods you've been worshiping. But I'll tell you what. I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment, I will clean you up as pure and holy as the way you would have been if I had created you in the beginning. And they danced with their tambourines because we're not only not being brutalized anymore, we're not only without our slave nature, we're not only, we're clean. And then they looked at one another and said, Egypt has a draw. We love our middle class, successful lifestyle. 
What if we go back? And God said, no, no, do you don't understand. I'm not only going to clean you up, I'm going to marry you and take you in my arms. The Jewish people fell in love with those four promises and the God who made them to the point of where those four promises are the basis of every Passover celebration. It's called a Seder. Some of you are familiar with it. I won't go through the whole Seder, but let me show you. The Seder, probably already in Jesus' day, is built around four cups of wine. One way before the meal, one just before the meal, one right after the meal, and one way at the very end. And those four cups represent the four promises. So you come to a Seder and you begin to tell the story of how God took us out of our terrible chaos, us. And you pass around a cup to say, Bless God! He took us out! Then the story goes on and you come to the part where we're no longer slaves by nature. He changed our very nature. And the cup is passed again to say, Yes! God set us free! And you have that wonderful meal. And just after the meal, you talk about how God took us to Sinai and gave us the sacrifice system. And in the sacrifice system, He provided a way for us to see the forgiveness of our sins so that we are clean. And then you finish the story. And as you come to the end of the story, you remember, tonight is Lyle Shimmerim. We have to go out and watch. We have to watch because we remember how our ancestors watched in terror as they waited for the angel of death, as they watched the Egyptian chariots. But we watch because there are still terrors that stalk by darkness. Think 9-11. We need God's ongoing protection. Come with me. Jesus knew this well. I don't know that you can make the point they had four cups. Some think they used one cup four times. I can find three of the four in the Bible. The first, the third, and the fourth. I think the second was there too, but I can't tell you that from Scripture. So put Jesus in that upper room. His disciples gather a bit troubled because things are tense, but with no idea what's about to happen. And they start that Last Supper, that Seder there in the upper room. And maybe John, the youngest, which is the Jewish tradition, doesn't say that, began to tell the story. And as John began to tell the story of how God took us out from under the oak and our ancestors didn't have to put their babies in the Nile anymore, watch their eyes glow with joy at the power of God. Watch their minds say, I wonder if you'll ever do that to the Romans who now oppress us. Watch Jesus' eyes glow as he remembers his ancestors being taken out from under. And watch Jesus raise the cup and bless and then pass it around. Lachaim! He took us out! Then the story continued 
I don't find the second cup there, but I think it probably was. But at least the story continues. And at some point, God took away our slave nature. Yes! We're free people. Drink! And then the supper. And after supper, the story continues. God saw how dirty and unclean His people were. And He brought them through that horrifying desert 40 days to Mount Sinai to give them a system that they could use to see that by His mercy, pictured in the blood of the Lamb, He would clean them up. We're acceptable to God. And watch Jesus raise the cup and bless after supper. And then say, this cup is a new covenant. Watch Him turn. That's different. It's a new covenant in My blood. I will clean you up. bet the mood changed. And the story may be more somberly now, I'm guessing, of course, of how God then said, and I will take you in my arms and protect you so that you never again go back to the chaos of Egypt. Watch as Jesus raises the cup. And then these startling words. No. I will not drink it again until I drink it new in the kingdom. But Jesus, there's still terror out there. You said one of us would betray you. The priests want to kill you. The Romans are looking for you. You don't want to go out without God's protection. You don't. I don't know what he thought. I wonder if he thought, no, I don't. But that is the will of my Father. And apparently he passed on the cup of protection. Most of you know what's coming. It would be a scary thing to walk out of this auditorium this morning knowing we have turned down God's protection. And they went out to the Mount of Olives, which probably looked like this. Today, because of all the religious stuff, it looks like this. And right here is what good scholars think is a place called Gethsemane. Believe it or not, the Bible does not refer, it to, refer to it as the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a garden there, and it's called Gethsemane. Not the garden, but the place. Well, why? Well, let me show you. A garden, this is the traditional place where Jesus went. Those olive trees are before his time. But the olive, the Gethsemane, is not the same as a garden. See, when olives are harvested, they look like this. And they're put in an instrument, an implement that looks like this. And then somebody pushes on that handle and rolls that huge millstone, smushing those olives to a pulp. That mush is put into baskets, pillows, really. And those pillows are placed under a huge weight of some kind. One style is like this. The other, like this. And the enormous weight, either of that lever with the weights hanging on the end, or this gigantic stone pillar squeezes out of the olives. 
till they're dry as sawdust. That precious, precious oil. Anointing oil. And that implement, or this one, is called Gat. Say Gat. Shemanim. Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is an implement for squeezing oil out of olives. They're usually found in caves like this. So Jesus and the disciples went down to the cave. They had had the Last Supper. They had recounted the story. They had passed around the cups. Though Jesus strangely had refused the last one. They remembered the story because it was their story as they came to this place or one that looked like it, a Gethsemane in a garden. But they remembered that in the story tonight is Lyle Shimmerim. So tonight we ought to watch. So Jesus turns to the guys and He says, the three of you come. And they went out of the Gethsemane And they went into the garden nearby. And Jesus turned to those young men and He said, Watch with Me! Watch with Me? Would you ever think that was a strange thing to say? He doesn't say pray with Me. He says watch with Me. Of course! It's the night of watching! And there are terrors that stalk by night. But fortunately, the Bible says, Israel's God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And with those words ringing in your ears, you sit up with eyes wide, remembering those Israelites in their terror and then in their joy, and you sit with wide eyes knowing that any one of us could face terror this afternoon. And so Jesus went. The three, maybe because they had four cups of wine, I don't know, couldn't watch. And Jesus went some distance away and He laid on His face. If you look at Mark, Mark chooses an unusual Greek word. Our Bible, my NIV Bible translates it greatly troubled. The Greek literally means sudden, shocking awareness. Now, in his divine nature, Jesus knew all things, past, present, and future, so he couldn't have been suddenly aware of something divine as far as his divine nature was. But in his human nature, he had to learn sudden, Shocking awareness. I wonder why. Maybe he remembered in that cave that ancient implement, that huge weight. And as he began to think about what he knew he had to do, the betrayal of a friend, the rejection by the religious leaders of his people, The brutal flogging. You've seen the passion. The excruciating pain of the cross. The rejection by God Himself. And maybe for Him, the reason that He's in Gethsemane was the weight of having to redeem, clean up the world was on Him. And that weight was so intense as he wrestled and watched in that moonlit night. Your sin and mine squeezed out of him sweat like drops of blood. And he became the anointing oil under the gachmanim. 
Or maybe there was something else. Because you see, the Passover in Jesus' day, they already thought about four cups. But there was a discussion going on. Should there be five? And it wasn't because the Hebrews were wine connoisseurs and they wanted another cup. It was because in their Bible, your Bible, it seems to say there's another cup. Pour out your wrath on the nations, says the psalmist. God's damnation wrath. His rage at anyone who brings chaos into the life of the helpless and the poor. His anger at Pharaoh. Patient as he is, has its limits. But the passage that most caught their eye was Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make the nations to whom I send you Drink it! My God. Can you imagine that cup? That's hell. That's the anger of an angry God. Not so much at helpless sinners. He's awfully patient with us. But anger at the evil that brings chaos. And so the rabbi said, should there be a fifth cup? Should there be at the Passover a cup filled with wine to remind us that God's anger has its limits and someday those who bring suffering and bitterness and chaos like the Egyptians will drink it if they don't repent. And they couldn't decide. So they said, our Bible says, before that day of God's anger comes, Elijah will come. We'll let him decide. He's a prophet. And so they called it Elijah's cup. If you've ever been at a Jewish Seder, you'll notice a cup that no one touches. That's Elijah's cup. I was stupid enough one time to say, do we drink this too? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. You want to drink this? Do you? And so I have the opinion that the sudden shocking awareness as Jesus lay in the dark wrestling with God the weight of the sins of the world on His shoulders, maybe that verse ran through His mind. Take from My hand the cup, of my, the cup filled with the wine of My wrath and... Maybe the awareness was suddenly, my God, the nations don't have to drink it. I do. No. No. Let this cup pass. No. Look it. Look. And he drank it. All of it. Look. It's empty. 
That was mine. don't know exactly how you celebrate and remember the Passover and from it Jesus' Passover and his death but it would be completely appropriate to have somewhere in the auditorium a cup and at some point in the worship someone who's part of the the, the, the leading in worship to come and to say, Look! Look. Let this cup pass. But not what I want. But what you want. Sometimes people say, RVL, where does the fire come from? Isn't that my word of fire? Declares the Lord. If you want the passion for Jesus that He had for His Father, You don't bring it to the book. The book gives it to you. But I'll tell you honestly, though I believe that with all my heart and that's what's been true for me, this is where the fire comes from. He took the cup of God's hellish anger at the chaos in my soul, the chaos that I've brought into other people's lives because I'm a sinner like I think you are. And he said, Father, I'll drink it! Even if it means this. And I cannot do anything less than give to him every ounce I've got. I think there were five cups. But for me, four. You? Father, that's a story that would do Hollywood proud. My prayer this morning is not, first of all, that everyone here now understands the story maybe a little more, or even that everyone here believes that that story was true. That would be a gift. My prayer of you this morning is that all of us, every single one, would not be an observer watching the story on the television of our mind, but that every single one of us would see ourselves as a character in the story. And that when our Messiah, the Lamb of God, laid on His face and pleaded to take the cup, pleaded with you to take the cup, but took it anyway, I pray that we would have been there too. And Father, I would ask that because of the chaos of sin that you've removed from us, we would walk out of here this morning with a fire in our soul to stand strong against any chaos-causing evil. 
in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own families, our own communities, in our nation, and in our world, that we would stand strong against anything that violates the shalom you desire. And I pray we would be people that wherever we go, others know just a taste of what shalom really is. We don't deserve to be your partners, but we sure are blessed to be. Thank you. In the name of our Messiah, amen.